For over 11 years, Little Diva Balloon Decorating has turned events into experiences and celebrations into parties. Let Little Divas worry about making your event the best it can be while you relax and enjoy it. Any event you can imagine, Little Divas can bring it to life. Specializing in balloon sculptures, cake table and doorway arches and more. Get a hold of Little Divas now and make your celebration, reunion or business function one they'll remember. Call 606-791-5616 or visit them on Facebook.com forward slash Little Diva Party Decorations and see it for yourself. Little Divas, it's where the memories begin. A production of Sloan Studios. The following may contain strong language and adult situations with depictions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Is advised. Murder. It's a nasty business. And one that's almost always very, very personal. It's said that there's always a tie to one of three reasons for murder. It could be robbery, could be jealousy, or it could be vengeance. Sometimes there's more than one of these at play, and things go further than our minds would like to conceive of. While the crime of murder is one of the most heinous that people can think of, it gets worse. When that crime stretches as far as to inflict children the killing of kids it's something that makes even the most hardened weak in the knees in this chapter of the mountain mysteries we look at questions that are nearly four decades old and to this day remain unsolved who would commit a quadruple homicide that involved the killing of four people three of them kids And why would they abduct one of them before killing them? And all the time, while leaving three other people completely unharmed in the same home? Well, these are the Mountain Mysteries. And this is episode number 64, Cabin 28. The Mountain Mystery of the Murder of the Sharp Family. Over 24% of the 1.9 billion square acres in America alone, the mountains that so many people call home, also play host to some of the most staggering mysteries in the world. The missing. And she said, I knew I wasn't there anymore. The murdered. All my emotions just went blank, just like, just blank. And I still live with that today. I think about that so much today as he was in that water. Strange creatures. Whatever it was that was standing up. I'm out here looking through the window now and I don't see anything. I don't want to go outside. I mean, it was a, nope, we need to get out of town. Unexplained lights and sightings. It does not look like an airplane. They come together and then they separate and they just keep doing this all the time. These stories may be strange. They may be sad. They may be odd. But they are mysterious. These are the Mountain Mysteries. And now your host, Chris Sloan.
want us to play a game. An exercise in imagination, if you will. Calm yourself. Relax. Listen to me. And let me take you to a place you've probably never been. At least I hope you've not. Imagine you're traveling down a long winding road through a dark forest in a small secluded part of the world. You come across the remains of a cabin that once stood there. It's... It's old. Broken tiles lay scattered around the ground. Cracked cement from the foundation and chipped wooden panels put down randomly all over the ground. Like that of a gory sight you'd see in a horror movie. They've laid there for decades, obviously. But there's something wrong with this place. Something... You can't quite put your finger on it, but you know it's not right. You can feel it in your stomach. Your innermost feelings tell you to keep away from here. It's a place that terrible, terrible things have happened. How terrible? More terrible than you can imagine. On the horrific night of April 12, 1981, four people met death way too soon at the hands of an unknown killer or maybe killers but to catch a killer is an art that cannot be manipulated without rupturing justice and regrettably in this case the cops made this particular art very difficult to perform now imagine if you will that we've gone back to 1981. You open your eyes and you look down to see the leaves under your feet and hear their crunch as you walk along the path home. It's Sunday, April 12, 1981. Five days from Good Friday. And spring is in the air all around you. Oh, there's pastel colors littering some of the neighbors' homes as the Easter decorations are out all over the place and you catch yourself smiling as you're heading to your house to get ready for church. You get to your door. You're at home. No need for knocking, so you just go on in. And your life changes forever. You look at the ceilings, then the walls, and the floors. Blood. Blood everywhere. Well, that's what happened to 14-year-old Sheila Sharp when she had come home after spending the night at a neighbor's cabin to find her mother, Sue Sharp, her brother Johnny Sharp, and his friend, Dana Hall Wingate, all tortured and murdered with electrical wire tied around their wrists and ankles. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, Chris, this is an image that's too much to bear for any reasonable person, and you'd be right. But imagine being her. Where does your mind go? Well, her mind began to rush, thinking of what to do next. You see, there were other people in the home, too, and she hadn't seen them yet. So she decided to check on her two brothers, Greg and Rick, and their friend, 12-year-old Justin Eason. 
Well, much to anybody's surprise, they all lay there peacefully asleep as if nothing had happened. Well, just a few feet away from where their very heads dreamt, murder had come. There was one more issue, though. Her sister. Her sister. She has, she has a sister. Where, where's her sister? Where's Tina? Where is she? Oh. Twelve-year-old Tina Sharp? She was missing. As police swamped the grisly scene haunting this small town, evidence and names fluttered through their heads and minds like the wings of a butterfly, as each officer made a judgment on what they had just seen, still trying to comprehend it. Slowly, they wavered to name any suspects. After all, this was a small town, and people talked. Rumors were then like they are now, flowing without any care as to who they may hurt. And so, the case went cold. No one was arrested. Years later, on the third anniversary of the murders, however, a man was out picking up cans and bottles and the like, and then he picked up something else. A phone. And dialed the local police department. Now, his voice was steady, but anxious, as he delivered a specific location. Fifty miles away from Ketty, he kept repeating. Tina Sharp's skull had been found. She wasn't missing anymore. The police neglected the ability to voice analyze the man, leaving the case once again cold. But suddenly, as it does, things change. And at the strangest of moments, sometimes hope developed. It was in 2013 that a new sheriff named Greg Hagwood reopened this case. Greg had known the family, the Sharp family, knew them personally. Hell, Greg knew most people around Kitty. This wasn't Los Angeles or San Diego. This was a small, quiet, and nice spot near the Nevada Sierra Mountains. But suddenly, oh my, 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 things started to unravel with only one question being asked. Why were the three boys spared? Justin Eason was the only one spared that was not related to the family. Oh, Justin, he was Marty Smart's stepson. And to make things even more convincing, Justin's stepfather, Marty, was not on good terms with Sue Sharp at all the mother of the boys who was found slain in that cabin. Seems that Sue had, just very recently as a matter of fact, tried to counsel Marty's wife Marilyn on leaving an abusive marriage with him, just as she, Sue herself, had done with her now ex-husband James. Oh, and meet Bo Boobaday, an ex-con roommate of Marty's. That could help him carry out an act as vicious as this one. With all of this information, it's not too tough to suspect anyone else but Marty Smart. So, how then could police not follow the leads pointing directly at this guy? Well, after Hagwood investigated further, 
he found boxes of evidence pointing towards Marty, including a letter of confession to his wife, a report of him confessing to a psychiatrist, and a hammer used at the crime scene that belonged to him. A lot of people kind of shrugged all of this off and they said, ah, the police department was just being naive. Oh, but there's others that said, no, it's evident this is a cover-up. The mystery behind the Ketty cabin murders is more complicated now than it seemed at first, but with this new sheriff and detective in town on, on the case, a ray of hope began to shine for the victim's that justice would finally be served and trump the activities of the preceding investigation. Both the criminals and the clear cover-up should be justly exposed for what they truly are. Well, decades went by, hiding this injustice, and it was easier than ever to let the case rest. But there are those that fight for hope and pray that justice will be shown for these victims. As a hopeful Sheila Sharp stated in 2013 to reporters, Finally, I have someone who cares. I have to give props to this. A good part of that was written by Ellie Tanko, the opinion editor for The Express, the student newspaper of Xavier High School. She wrote it March 11, 2020. I've got a feeling she has got one hell of a career waiting on her. The Katie murders, as they're now called, is an unsolved quadruple homicide. It took place over the night of April 11th and 12th, 1981 in Katie, California. Now, Katie's located in Northern California, and it's, for the most part, a resort town. The victims were Glenna Susan Sharp. She went by Sue. Her daughter, Tina Louise Sharp had a son, John Stephen Sharp, and John's friend, Dana Hull Wingate. These killings took place in what's called Cabin 28 of the Ketty Resort. The bodies of Sue, John, and Dana were found on the morning of April 12, 1981, by Sue's 14-year-old daughter, Sheila, who had been sleeping over at a friend's house nearby. Sue's two younger sons, Rick and Greg, as well as their friend, Justin Eason, were also in the house at the time of the murders, but they were completely unharmed left alone. Tina was missing from the home. Now, Tina remained a missing person until April of 1984. That's when her skull and several other bones were recovered at Camp 18 in California. It's near Feather Falls in Butte County. Multiple leads and suspects were examined in the intervening years, but no charges had ever been filed. Several new leads were announced in the 21st century, including the discovery of a hammer in a pond back in 2016, as well as announcements regarding the discovery of new DNA evidence. But let's go a little bit into the background here. It was in July of 1979 that Glenna Sue Sharp, along with her five kids, left her home in Connecticut after splitting from her abusive husband, James Sharp. She decided to move to Northern California, where her brother Don was living. She needed and wanted to be near family. Support can make all the difference. Well, when she arrived in California, she began to rent this small trailer, formerly occupied by her brother at the Claremont Trailer Village in Quincy. But she quickly realized this was too small, way too small for her needs. So the following fall, 
She moved to Cabin 28 in the rural Sierra Nevada resort town of Caddy. The house was a lot larger than the trailer had been, thankfully, and had become available when then Plumas County's Sheriff Sylvester Douglas Thomas moved out of it. There she lived with her 15-year-old son, John, her 14-year-old daughter, Sheila, 12-year-old daughter, Tina, and two younger sons, Rick and Greg, who were ages 10 and 5, respectively. Then that date rolls around, April 11, 1981. It was around 11.30 in the morning that Sue, Sheila, and Greg drove from the residence of their friends, the Meeks family, to pick up Rick, who was attending baseball tryouts in Quincy. Well, as it so happened, they come upon John and his friend, Dana Hall Wingate, who were hitchhiking at the mouth of the canyon from Quincy to Ketty, and picked them up. They drove about six miles to Ketty. Two hours later, around 3.30, John and Dana hitchhiked back to Quincy, where they may have had plans to visit friends, it seems. Well, anyways, it was around this time the two were seen in the city's downtown area. That same evening, 14-year-old Sheila had plans to spend the night with the Seabolt family, who lived in a nearby home. Sue's plans were to stay at home with Rick, Greg, and the boy's young friend, Justin Eason. So, Sheila left Cabin 28 shortly after 8 p.m., leaving her mother alone with the younger kids. Tina, who had been watching television at the Seabolt's residence, returned home to cabin 28 around 9.30 in the evening after Sheila arrived at the Seabolts to spend the night. Around 7 o'clock in the morning on April 12th, it was Sunday, five days before Good Friday, Sheila returned to what was known as cabin 28, and that's when her life changed. She discovered the dead bodies of her mom, Sue, and her brother John, and their friend Dana, in the living room of the home. The home that was now hell. All three had been bound with medical tape and electrical cords. Tina was nowhere to be found. But there were three younger children, Rick, Greg, and Justin, who were unharmed in one of the bedrooms only feet away from where the killings had happened. Well, at first, reports stated that the three young boys had slept right through the incident. I can't imagine that happening. But that was later contradicted. Upon discovering the scene, Sheila rushed back to the Seabolt's house, at which point Jamie Seabolt went in and got the boys, Rick and Greg Smart and Justin Eason. But he got them through the bedroom window. He later admitted to having briefly entered the home through the back door to see if anyone was still alive. And then he realized he had potentially contaminated evidence in the process. So he went to the bedroom window to get them out. The murders of Sue, John, and Dana were especially vicious. Two bloodied knives and one hammer were found at the scene. And one of the knives, which was a steak knife, was later determined to have been used in the murders and had been bent roughly at 30 degrees. Blood spatter evidence from inside the house indicated that the murders of Sue, John, and Dana had all taken place in the living room. Sue was discovered lying on her side near the living room sofa, nude from the waist down and gagged with a blue bandana and her own underwear, which had been secured with tape. She had been stabbed in the chest, 
Her throat was stabbed horizontally, the wound going through her larynx and nicking her spine. And on the side of her head was an imprint matching the butt of a Daisy 880 Powerline BB pellet rifle. John's throat had been slashed. Dana had suffered blunt force trauma to the head caused by a hammer or hammers. Autopsies would confirm that Sue and John died from the knife wounds and blunt force trauma and Dana died by strangulation. Sheila and the Seabolt family, with whom Sheila had spent the night, said that they had heard no commotion during the night whatsoever, but a couple living in nearby Cabin 16 said that they were woke up at about a quarter past one in the morning by what they said sounded like muffled screaming. Tina's jacket, shoes, and toolbox containing various tools were missing from the house, which showed no signs of forced entry, indicating that they knew the killer or killers. The house's telephone had been taken off the hook and the cord cut from the outlet and the drapes were closed. Martin Smart, a neighbor and main suspect, and Justin Eason's stepfather, claimed that a claw hammer had inexplicably gone missing from his home. My, how convenient. Plumas County Sheriff Sylvester Thomas, who presided over the case later, stated that Martin had provided endless clues in the case that seemed to throw the suspicion away from him. In addition to interviewing the Smarts, detectives interviewed several other locals and neighbors, including members of the Seabolt family. Uh, some people recalled seeing a green van parked at the Sharps house around 9 o'clock that evening. Now, original composite sketches of two suspects based on testimony from Justin, who claimed to have witnessed the crimes, were released. But Justin Eason gave conflicting stories about that night, including that he had dreamed details of the murders, but then he later claimed to have actually witnessed them. In his later account of events, which was told under hypnosis, he claimed to have awoken to sounds coming from the living room while he was asleep in the bedroom with Rick and Greg. So he wanted to see what was going on, so he got up to investigate. He said that he saw Sue with two other men. One had a mustache and short hair, the other clean-shaven, with long hair. Both of them, though, wore glasses. According to Justin, John and Dana then entered the home and began heatedly arguing with the men. A fight broke out, after which Tina entered the room and was taken out of the cabin's back door by one of the men. Now, based on Justin's descriptions, composite sketches of the two unknown men were produced by a man named Harlan Embry, a man with no artistic ability and no training in forensic sketching. And this was never explained as to exactly why him. Why did he create these sketches? When the authorities had access to the Justice Department's and the FBI's top forensic artists, experts in their field, and they choose to use an amateur who sometimes volunteered to help local police when he could or when he wanted Hmm. In press releases that went out with the sketches, the suspects were identified as being in their late 20s to early 30s. One stood about 5 foot 11 inches to 6 foot 2 inches, had dark blonde hair. The other one between 5 foot 6 and 5 foot 10 with black greasy hair. 
Both wore gold-framed sunglasses. Rumors regarding the crimes being ritualistic or motivated by drug trafficking were quickly put down by Plumas County Sheriff Doug Thomas, who stated in the week after the murders that no drug paraphernalia or illegal drugs were ever found in the home. Now, Carla McMullen, who was a family acquaintance, later told detectives that Dana Wingate had recently stolen an unknown quantity of LSD from local drug dealers, but she was unable to prove that claim. About 4,000 man-hours were spent working the case, and Thomas described it as frustrating. In December of 1983, detectives rolled out serial killers Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole as potential suspects. Tina's disappearance was originally investigated by the FBI as a possible abduction, but it was reported that on April 29, 1981, the FBI had backed off the search. As they said, the California State Department of Justice was doing an adequate job, and that made the FBI's presence unnecessary. A grid pattern search of the area covering about a five-mile radius around the house was conducted with police canines, but the efforts produced no successful results. On April 22, 1984, three years and 11 days after the murders, a bottle collector discovered the cranium portion of a human skull and part of a mandible at Camp 18 near Feather Falls in neighboring Butte County, a distance of about 100 miles from Ketty. Shortly after announcing the discovery, the Butte County Sheriff's Office received an anonymous call that identified the remains as belonging to Tina. But the call was not documented in the case. A recording of this call was found at the bottom of an evidence box at some point after 2013 by a deputy who was assigned the case. The remains were confirmed by forensic pathologist to be those of Tina in June of 1984. And near the remains, detectives also discovered a blue nylon jacket, a blanket, a pair of Levi Strauss jeans with a missing back pocket, and an empty medical tape dispenser. The house in which the murders happened was demolished in 2004. In a 2008 documentary on the murders, Marilyn Smart claimed that she suspected her husband Martin and his friend John Bow. Boobaday, were actually responsible for these killings. Marilyn claimed that on the evening of April 11, 1981, she had left Martin and Boobaday at a local bar around 11 o'clock at night and returned home to go to sleep. Around 2 o'clock in the morning on April 12th, she said that she woke up to find the two burning unknown items in a wood stove. Additionally, she alleged that Martin hated Johnny Sharp with a passion. However, in the 2008 documentary, Sheriff Doug Thomas said he had personally interviewed Martin and that he had passed a polygraph examination. Now, there's a reason that these polygraphs are not admissible in court. According to a 2016 article published by the Sacramento Bee, Martin had left Ketty and driven to Reno, Nevada shortly after the murders. From there, he sent a letter to Marilyn ruminating on personal struggles in their marriage, which he concluded with the following statement, quote, I've paid the price for your love, and now I've bought it with four people's lives. End quote. In a 2016 interview, Plumas County Special Investigator Mike Gamberg stated that the letter was overlooked in the initial investigation and never admitted as evidence. He later criticized the quality of the initial investigation, said that you could have took somebody just coming out of the academy and they would have done a better job than this. 
A counselor whom Martin regularly visited also alleged that he had admitted to the murders of Sue and Tina, but said that he had nothing to do with killing the boys. He allegedly told the counselor that Tina was killed to prevent her from identifying him as she had witnessed the whole thing. Martin Smart died of cancer in Portland, Oregon in June of 2000. Now as for his ex-con buddy and live-in roommate John Bubaday, who allegedly had ties to organized crime in Chicago, well, he died in Chicago in 1988. On March 24, 2016, a hammer matching the description of the hammer that Martin claimed to have lost, oh, well, that was discovered in a local pond and taken into evidence by Plumas County Special Investigator Mike Gambert. Plumas County Sheriff Hagwood, who was 16 years old at the time of the murders and knew the Sharp family personally, said, The location that it was found in? It would have had to have been put there intentionally. There's no way that that could have accidentally been misplaced in the pond. Gamberg also stated, at the time, that six potential suspects were being examined. In April of 2018, Gamberg stated that DNA evidence recovered from a piece of tape at the crime scene matched that of a known living suspect. Forty years later, police have not made any arrest in the murders of the Sharp family and their friend Dana Wingate. However, that doesn't mean police don't have any suspects in mind. We know that they were looking closely at Martin Smart, who was Justin Eason's stepfather and his friend Bo Boobaday. Well, they're dead now. Martin and his wife Marilyn were neighbors of the Sharp family and they were enrolled in the same typing class with Sue. That's how Sue and Marilyn got to be friends. Martin had just met Bo only a few weeks before all of this went down. Met him at a local Veterans Affairs hospital, and they became friendly. And Martin allowed Bo to move into his home. Now, the sheriff at the time of the murders, Doug Thomas, and his deputy lieutenant, Don Stoy, was not initially able to discern an apparent motive. What? No apparent motive? The murders at Caddy Cabin 28 appeared to be random acts of cruelty, he said. He said the strangest thing is that there's no apparent motive. Any case without an apparent motive is tough to solve. That, according to the Sacramento Bee, is what he said in 1987. Yeah, that's true. Okay, let me throw out an idea here as to motive. Martin didn't like Sue at all. And this was due to the fact that she was trying to counsel Marilyn, Martin's wife into leaving him because he was an abusive prick. And she had endured this for years. So Sue was trying to talk her into leaving him, just like she had left her ex-husband James. So Martin and this ex-con guy named Bo shows up at Sue's the night of the murder. Knocks on the door. And of course she lets him in. His stepson's in there. So yes, Sue lets him in. And there's your no-forced entry. And there's the reason why Justin... His own stepson and Greg and Rick were left completely alone, even though the killings happened feet from where they slept. Detectives did recover an unidentified fingerprint from a handrail on the back of the stairs, like we told you about. The cabin's telephone had been left off the hook, and all of the lights had been shut off as well as the drapes closed. No shocker there. You know, it's been over 40 years and no one's ever been arrested for this. All we can do is hope that someday 
in some land. Justice will be served for Sue, Tina, and John Sharp and their friend Dana Hallwingate. Remember to join us for the Mountain Mysteries Gatherings Thursday nights at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time on Facebook.com forward slash The Mountain Mysteries. Don't forget to check us out online at www.themountainmysteriespodcast.com. Follow The Mountain Mysteries on Facebook.com forward slash The Mountain Mysteries, on Instagram at Instagram.com forward slash The Mountain Mysteries, and support us on Patreon. Links are on the homepage, www.themountainmysteriespodcast.com. If you enjoy The Mountain Mysteries, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. That helps us so much. You can also help support The Mountain Mysteries by visiting our sponsors, whose links are below, or by donating at Patreon or the PayPal link shown in the notes. Patreon subscribers will receive early commercial-free episodes and more. Production of Sloan Studios. Stay mysterious.